this episode, Justice League International number 17, cover dated September 1988. Welcome to the 17th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's Iridamal Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every episode, I'll feature a different guest host. This time, my co-host is a real-life comics writer person. He's had lengthy runs writing numerous mainstream titles. You guys, you've seen his name all over the place on books like Adventures of Superman, Uncanny X-Men, Cable, Wildcats, G.I. Joe, and many more. He's also found tremendous success with his own creator-owned works, such as Godland, Officer Down, Butcher Baker, The Righteous Maker, and the series simply entitled Sex. Uh, along with his partners, he helped found a group called Man of Action Entertainment, which created the juggernaut Ben 10 for Cartoon Network. And more recently, he's been writing for Lionforge Comics titles such as Excel and Incidentals. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Joe Casey. Welcome to the Embassy, Joe. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Shag. I got to say, I completely looked into this, folks. I did not go out seeking out Mr. Casey. I did not realize he was such a fan of the 80s. He was suggested to me as someone else, and I reached out, and he was foolish enough to respond and say, sure. So, 80s, in your DNA, in your love, what, what, what's the deal here? Why are you here? I, I just can't get enough of the 80s, man. <laughs> I'm like, they stopped doing those VH1 compilation shows, so I got I to gotta get it out somewhere. <laughs> we all have that problem. We all have that problem. We just want to pipe 1987 right into the veins is what I want to do most of the time. If only. If only I could main that every day. It would be the best. So you've taken this love of the 80s, you've taken your love of multimedia, and you have really found an amazing niche for yourself. I mean, Ben 10? Dude, that's huge! My son, he's 18, and he grew up loving this show. He played with action figures, you know? I was reading up on a line today. $4.5 billion industry, sir. Wow! That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> so what brought you to, you know, leaving comics? We were all following you, at least for me, in the Adventures of Superman, things like that. Then you kind of disappear off the radar for me, and then you're over there in Cartoon Network. How did that happen? How did you find your way over there. Well, we were good friends with Matt Senreich, who is one of the creators of Robot Chicken on Adult Swim, mm -hmm. not the Cartoon Network, but Adult Swim. And he had heard that they were looking for original superhero properties. They had done a lot of DC licensed stuff, and I guess they were sick of it. Um, <laughs> they wanted to own it. They wanted to control it. They wanted to, you know, not have to deal with DC, I suppose, which we can understand. We can understand. <laughs> sort of ironic. It's a podcast about a DC comic, but anyway. Exactly, exactly. So our company was fairly new. We did a couple things here and there, but we went in as a group and we pitched a bunch of things. Ben 10 was one of them. And thankfully they bit. And here we are, you know, over 10 years later and we're on the, I think the fifth iteration of the show. Yeah, I think so. And still going strong. Hard That's to believe. Generator Rex, right? Well, Generator Rex was the, was the second show we sold. Oh. To but, See, I, get, I get so easily confused. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, there's been like, you know, there was Ben 10 and there was Ben 10 Omniverse, then Ben 10 Ultimate Alien, then Ben 10 and Ronald mcdonald and now <laughs> now it's back to just ben 10 so we've it's it's come full circle back to the simple classic ben 10 sort of like the justice League international explosion when they had all the spinoffs and eventually they all kind of collapsed back down so i, I can see it exactly yeah. exactly we rode the wave and the collapse and here we are back again so your partners here folks just in case you don't know who they are i mean when you hear these names you're gonna like oh my gosh these were totally the folks i was reading in comics 10 years ago or so here's obviously joe casey joe kelly Stephen T. Siegel, and how do you say Duncan's last name? Rouleau. Ah, 
See, I like to give flourishes, so I've been calling him Duncan Richelieu all these years. That's pretty good. <laughs> He'd answer to that. He'd answer to that. <laughs> now, for you, when you're when you're sitting because you're still writing comics as well. I mean, you're all over the place doing different things. How do you approach a project when you know it's going to be a, a visual medium or an animated medium versus a comic book format? Like, is there a difference when you approach the project? Well, my comics these days are a lot more eccentric because I can afford to take those chances. Okay. A lot of my more commercial work is in the TV animation field or just, you know, everything but comics is a lot more commercially minded and more okay. mainstream minded, which gives me a lot of freedom in the comics area to, to do, you know, wacky, wacky books like Sex and Officer Down and Godland. These are not mainstream titles in maybe in concept, but certainly not in execution because I get to experiment. I get to do different things. It's a good pressure release valve okay. for the what I have to put up with just to make cartoons because <laughs> uh, that's dealing. You're dealing with networks and you know producing partners and toy manufacturers and a whole range of things you have to satisfy. But comics becomes a much more personal artistic expression uh, as it should be. You know, it, it kind of worked out. For for me in that way that I'm able to do comics in the same way that I thought about them when I was, you know, a teenager just dreaming about making them. Mm -hmm. Now I actually can make them in that fashion as opposed to getting completely sucked into the machinery of corporate work for hire comics, which I did for a long time and had a good time doing it. But this ultimately owning the work brings its own satisfaction. Oh, I can only imagine. And you're talking about release valves. I was, I think Officer Down was probably a huge release valve. <laughs> I read that this yeah. week. What a blast that comic is. Oh my gosh! I mean, just I walked out, punched in the air, just ready to, you know, I don't know. Felt like Stallone was inside of me, raging to get out. It was so much fun. Well, you should see the movie. I haven't seen it. I know. I saw. I was reading up on that. I didn't know there was a film. Oh, I'm definitely going to be seeking that out. I can't wait. Netflix, baby. Netflix. <laughs> oh, was it really on Netflix? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The one am I doing talking to you? I'm going to go watch that right now. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of some comics, why don't we take a, a quick second here to thank our sponsors, folks? Because that'll give me a chance to talk about another one of your comics that I'm really enjoying. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we'll select a collected edition that, uh, from the InStockTrade library that sort of you know, touches on something with the JLI or this episode. And in this case, I picked one of your series, sir. I picked Godland, Volume 1, Hello Cosmic Trade Paperback, which I am reading right now and having an absolute blast with. Wow. Folks, if you haven't read Godland, you've made a huge mistake with your life, just like I have. Uh, this is an Eisner Award nominee comic. It is... <laughs> Forgive me. I'm gonna. I'm only like finishing up issue three. So if it takes a turn, I don't really know. But this is like ah. if Jack Kirby were alive today, this is the kind of comics he he would be making in the style of what he did in the '60s. It's just it's like a great homage to Jack Kirby. Even the the folks from Jack Kirby Collector Arm have been raving about this book. If I've done it a disservice, I apologize. But that's how I see it, and I'm having an absolute blast. Written by Joe, artist Tom Scioli. Is that how you say? Scioli. I am the worst at pronouncing everything. Just putting <laughs> that out there, folks. Um, Hundred. 144 pages, normally retails for $14.99. You can get this thing 42% off, so it's only $8.69. That's insane! That's like just barely the price of two comic books nowadays off the shelves. And here you get, what, uh, the first six issues, I think it is, of Godland, and it is an absolute blast. I am loving it. If you've ever loved anything from Jack Kirby and Marvel, you've got to read it. They're practically giving it away. <laughs> right, I know. Now, did I do it a disservice with my description? I hope I didn't. No, we look at Kirby as a genre, okay. and we attack it that way, and that is the first of six six volumes, and it, it definitely gets wackier and wackier as it goes along. 
Well, I'm, I'm in all the way, so I love it. Now, the guest of the show isn't always required to bring an in-stock trades recommendation, but did, you know, the cool kids do, usually. So, did you happen to bring one? I have one. I oh, have one. It's, all right. It's relatively recent. It is the Night Business hardcover, uh, published by Fanagraphics, and it's by a very cool indie creator named Benjamin Mara. Hmm. And the sort of the connection is, Night Business is sort of an 80s exploitation, trash culture comic with everything that was a direct-to-video staple in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> is crammed into this comic. And it's, it's a collection of Ben's first uh, work that he did in comics. It was a self-published, you know, black and white newsprint series. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fantagraphics did it upright, put in a nice hardcover, still black and white, but but still very cool. And in stock trades, they're selling it for uh, $17.49. Usually it's 24 bucks, So that's 30% off. Nice. This thing just came out in December, so it, it's it's hot off the presses. But it's it's definitely worth it. It's very cool. And, and Ben's a great guy, and he's probably... Our mutual friend Michelle Fife would agree that this is uh, prime comics to own. Awesome. So, so if it's everything from direct video in the '80s, we're talking all the stuff we used to watch on HBO when our parents went to sleep, but we should know. Well, yeah, with a little Skinamax thrown in there for good. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, sir. Well, folks, and all your other street paperback needs, please go out and visit InStockTrades.com. Awesome. Well, folks, we want to hear your thoughts on this issue of JLI as we dig into it. We want to hear your thoughts on Joe. I mean, there's a lot to say, really, and this, there's a lot of negative things you can say, too. Let's be honest. But... <laughs> See, I'm starting off. I'm starting off right, aren't I? Go out to social medias. Use the hashtag #PoundFWPodcast. You can also find us as JLI Podcast on Twitter or the Just League International Baja Podcast on Facebook. And uh, we want to hear your thoughts. The whole point of the show is to build an online community around the JLI to love it, support it, grow together as a group. I mean, the comment threads on this sh- on these shows are ridiculous. The amount of people that are chiming in, how much they love this series. So we want to hear from you. Please, please chime in. Joe, it is time to pick your brain, sir. I, okay. I know you love the 80s. I know it's in your DNA. But what is your origin story with the JLI? How'd you find it? What made you fall in love with it? Well, I think I was a typical DC fan of my generation, which basically means I started off as a Marvel kid, but was pulled in, as probably a lot of people were, by the Wolf and Perez Teen Titans. Mm. That was my entry into the DC universe. And from there, I got my mind blown by things like Frank Miller's Ronin and Fleming Von Eden's Three. Thriller, mm. uh, discovered Alan Moore Swamp Thing, was curious about Crisis on Infinite Earths, but I wasn't so versed in the DCU that I thought, well, th- this is a monumental thing, but it turned into a monumental thing, obviously. And, and uh, of course, that was right at the same time as things like Dark Knight and Watchmen, which I was way into. And after Crisis, I'm kind of always curious how things follow up. Mm-hmm. So I loved Crisis, but with something like Legends, I was all in on Legends. I thought, and not to mention it was John Byrne, who was just, you know, fresh off the boat at DC. So I, I, I was way into it. And of course, all these books spun out of Legends, including Justice League. And so I was way in. I, you know, that was, to me, the linchpin of my interest in that in that time period of DC. It was the epicenter of the DC universe for me and probably for a lot of other people. I remember seeing the cover of Justice League 1 in Comic Buyer's Guide, that newspaper that used to come out yeah. every week. Oh, yeah. And just was – I'd never seen Kevin McGuire's art. I was fascinated just by this black and white cover, these people that were in the JLA that I – or the Justice League that I knew of but didn't I mean it was a very disparate kind of lineup for the Justice League absolutely and so I was and I was already a big Giffen fan I'd loved the stuff he'd done on Legion of Superheroes at that point 
Loved the ambush bug stuff. I knew he had a wide range of interests, but him on Justice League was like, to me, way out in left field. That interested me. And him doing Justice League sealed the deal for me. I was, I was right there, bought the first issue the day it came out or the week it came out, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things where I had these real strong memories of skipping class in uh, high school, getting in my car, driving downtown to the, to the direct market comic store that we had, the one that we had. <laughs> And, you know, buying these Justice League issues that come coming out. And I, I love McGuire's art from the moment I saw it. It was the most accessible superhero art I'd ever seen, even more so than the stuff I'd grown up with. Because even though guys like Perez and John Byrne and Simonson, I love those guys. They had these precedents, usually guys like Kirby or Neil Adams. Uh, but McGuire seemed to have no precedent. I don't know where he came from. I don't know what was his, what his influence. To this day, I don't know what his comic book influences are. He just seemed like this anomaly of an artist, but still so commercial, so mainstream. And uh, I think the fact that he was following uh, Giffen's layout so closely had had a lot to do with why I responded so strongly because I just mm-hmm. I, I loved Giffen's storytelling. But that I was just I was balls deep from page one, issue one, and they they just grabbed me and and, and that book just never let go. I can see everything you're talking about. I mean, an interesting thing too about McGuire's influences, like even and I've read some books from about him, interviews with him, and I'm sure he must have referenced his influences there, but you can't see it. It's not like you hear so and so was an influence and you see it in the page. What he's created is just something so amazing and original. It's just gorgeous. Absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. Like you, I, I came in a little differently. I came in through Crisis, really, is what did bring me in. But similar to you, though, Legends was where I was like, okay, I'm all in. I'm buying all the crossovers. I don't care if there's 42 of them. I am all in. And I, I just completely immersed myself in the DC Universe at that point and loved it. And, and the two things, really, I think people should walk away from here is, first, this man just quoted in his inspirations Thriller, which I don't know that anyone has ever done um, <laughs> from DC. So, good, well, Good on you, sir. And second, kids, remember, it is important to skip class to buy your comics. That is an important life lesson right there. And I think your teachers will excuse it. I don't think it's going to be a problem. Well, I had a whole scam going. It was I was I was kind of skipping class, but I wasn't skipping class. It'd be a whole thing to get into. But needless to say, <laughs> you know, I think the education I got from buying these comics served me a lot better in my life than spending that extra hour in school would have. Right. Exactly. I know. Well, you know, I have to sit there and justify that to my kids now. And, you know, my, my stepson's doing, you know, complicated algebra break formulas. He's like, am I ever going to use this? And I'm like, no, never in your life. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I can't lie to him. Well, and also when it comes to children, it's always do as I say, not as I do. That's the best That's oh. the best way to go. Absolutely. I wouldn't want to grow up in this day and age where everything you do is documented because then they'd know what we did when we were kids. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah, exactly. So who are your favorite JLI characters? Now, if you can narrow it down to, you know, one to three, that would be great. Most most guests don't seem to know how to count, so we'll see how you – that education that you skipped out. Yes, I do have three, and I have and they're specific. Oh. They're very specific. I, I, my favorites, okay. probably not the most obvious, but I I mean, Batman might be an obvious one. Boring. Uh, Seriously, Batman, everyone picks I'll Batman. justify it. Don't worry. Okay. Then there uh, was Mr. Miracle. And Doctor Fate, who didn't last very long, but I thought he was—I thought he was important and so badass. The reason why I picked those three is because those characters, their their backgrounds provided this breadth of material 
from Batman and sort of like the, the street level stuff to Mr. Miracle and the whole Kirby fourth world Doc uh. and the mystical side of the DCU. Those three characters, you could tell a wide range of stories coming out of their backgrounds, springing from those characters' backgrounds. Okay. And the thing about it is, when it comes to Justice League and JLI and JLE and the whole the whole run with uh, Giffen and, and, and Dimitrius, is that I was not a huge fan of the comedic side of Justice League. I get it, and I enjoyed it while it was happening, but in retrospect, as I look back, those first 6 to 12 issues, before they really hit on it, right. were, to me, a lot more compelling as comic books. Okay. I thought they were doing really great action-adventure superhero comics and were doing just fine without all the wackiness that they tapped into later. And I believe me, I know I'm in the minority with that opinion, but... Well, not, not necessarily, but you picked a bad issue to start with on that, but go ahead. Well, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that later, but you know, <laughs> my favorite issues of the whole series are still the ones with real stakes and bonafide drama, uh, which, which Giffen and and Demetrius did extremely well. And this mm-hmm. day, I think, are underrated in that area because when they hit on something that people respond to that was different and original, which the which the, the, the comedic stuff was, they definitely leaned into it. They definitely exploited that because that's what they became known for. And believe me, when you're a creator and you stumble onto something, even by accident, that becomes your trademark, you, you're serving your own brand by leaning into it, by really exploiting sure. it. Not, that's not a... That's not a pejorative to say that they did it well but for me mm-hmm. personally i felt like as i've gone back and reread that run several times over the course of my life i felt like i responded even when i was a kid i responded to the dramatic stuff a lot more than the than the blah ha stuff sure sure i can see that yeah and it does become a bit sitcom after a while there's no denying that but when you shotgun it and you read it like boom 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 there is sort of an effect where you're going through the joke 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 and then you get to you know what happens with Blue Beetle uh, around issue 26 or so. Or, I don't want to say it because it has an impact on this issue, but, or Despero. Yes. Or, or the death of a character. And it's just like, wow, it has so much impact because you've been laughing all this time. And then you get to that. And yeah, they, they really knew how to weave that in there expertly. Oh, wow. And those guys had the chops to sell that with all the power and the drama that you want from moments like that. And, you know, I felt like there were times where that had to or ended up getting edged out a little bit more than I wanted. I, I want, I guess, and I, you know, here, here I am bagging on the, on, on one of the greatest comics of the eight, but, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I have to be honest, my, my appreciation for it. And I guess because the, that drama and that series has happened in such limited bursts, it makes it seem more precious over the course of the run, you know, so I appreciate yeah. it more. I guess if, if the balance went the other way, I might be sitting here going, oh, man, they had this comic edge that they didn't quite tap into enough for me. So the thing that they was w- held back on is the thing I appreciate in most of all, I think. Well, I, I, I got to say, you, you led with Batman and I accused you being boring, but you strung it together and you made a very powerful argument, almost as if you knew how to tell a story in some way, like you've done it for a living. So I, I'm impressed. I, I've, well I've had my moments in this before. <laughs> All right, we'll tell you what, why don't we dive in and talk about some other comics, because we love the 80s, uh, that were on the shelves about the same time in a segment I like to call... Monitor Duty. 
Okay, folks, these are other comics that are on the shelves featuring JLI members in May of 1988, because this comic went on sale in May 17th, 1988. Joe wouldn't remember because he was skipping class that day. But uh, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. So we're going to start this off with one of my favorites, Who's Who, uh, Update 88, number two. Now, this includes lots of JLI members, such as Ice Maiden, the JLI itself, the JLI embassies, Manga Khan, and Martian Manhunter. Woof! Now, admittedly, Who's Who 88, not my favorite iteration of the comic, <laughs> but still, I, 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 we do a show called Who's Who, where we go through every single issue of Who's Who. I'm, I'm not kidding. It's a sad, sad case for us, but we go page by page and talk about every single entry and every single artist, and we have a blast, and for some reason, like, five people listen. And I realized as I went through it, the Who's Who 88 really wasn't all that well put together. It's kind of like DC was a little tired of doing it by then, because that was the last of our updates, you know? And then when they, they come back with the, the Loose Leaf in 1990, they really were hitting their game again. I will say the covers were better, though. Oh, the Ty Templetons? They're amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, I love those. Yes, <clears throat> they're absolutely gorgeous. So, folks, uh, not to toot my own horn, but for more information on Who's Who, please feel to check out the Who's Who po- podcast hosted by Rob Kelly and myself. Then we're going to dive into the Dark Knight realm here, folks. We're going to hit a bunch of these, because uh, Batman it's got way too many. You think he had a lot of comics on the shelves nowadays? Back then he did too. So, because they had just figured out they could sell more Batman comics every minute. So, Batman number 423 is on the shelves by Jim Starlin and Dave Cockrum with a cover by Todd McFarlane. And in this one, three police officers exchange tales about meeting the Batman. Also on the shelves was Batman the Cult number one by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson. It's an incredible story about Batman versus Deacon, uh, Deacon Blackfire. Now, this is one of the first Batman comics I bought myself off the show. Did you ever read this one? Oh, of course. Of course. Man. Wow. Just what a way to get introduced to some Batman stuff for me. I was blown away by it. Um, Detective Comics Annual Number 1 by Denny O'Neill and Klaus Jansen. This is part one of a crossover with Green Arrow featuring Lady Shiva in the question, and this continues in the same month in the Green, Air, Green Arrow Annual Number 1. Detective Comics Number 589 by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Norm freaking Brayfogle. Batman continues his battle with the Corrosive Man and the Cadaver, and you know it's absolutely freaking gorgeous if Norm's drawing it. Uh, for more on Batman during this era, please check out our network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Ryan Daly. Both past guests of the show. Also on the shelves was Captain Adam number 18 by Carrie Bates, Greg Weissman, and Pat Broderick. It's a race between General Eiling versus Dr. Megala over a brand new satellite. And uh, for more on Captain Adam, please check out Jay Jones's coverage over on the Silver and Gold podcast and also in his Splitting Adams blog. And Jay is also a past guest of the show. I love me some Pat Broderick. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I'm a Firestorm guy. Yeah. And that was, you know, I did Firestorm blogs and podcasts and stuff like that. And Pat Broderick, I mean, those early issues, you can't touch those. Yeah, I mean, right. he's great. So great. He's fantastic. You want to take this next one for us? Well, there uh, was Action Comics Weekly, number 609, which had Black Canary started uh, a run of this issue by Sharon Wright, Randy DeBurke, and Pablo Marcos. This issue has the uh, famous Brian Ballin cover where Black Canary's burning her JLI-era costume. I don't know what message that's sending, but uh, <laughs> Brian Ballin. I-, I would call it an infamous cover myself, but go ahead. He's a bit of a freak, that Brian Ballin, I think. But uh, so. the best thing about that story is that uh, is Randy DeBurke's artwork. He is mm. a uh, amazing under the radar creator from that era. You you look at his work and you saw the Paul Glacey influence right off the bat. I love that guy's work. He didn't do enough of it, and the story is good. It's a real hard boiled kind of crime story with Black Canary, uh, which might have been the first of that kind of story that she was in. She went on and had a whole monthly series, same kind of tone, but. Mm. Um, these stories are great. Randy DeBurke, I, I, I love that guy. You know, I'd have to do a quick search in the internet. I know his name. I know I've read some books with him, and I, and, and I can kind of picture. Ah, oh, man, wish I off the top of my head, I don't know. This, I mean, this this was a big deal. This is her first headlining thing. Wow, probably since the '40s, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So good on her. Yeah. So, well, I, I, I take that back. I'm sorry. She had a couple backups in, was it World's Finest? Probably, um, yeah. Yeah. I did forget swap out. She would swap out with Green Arrow in the early yeah. 80s, too, I think. Yeah, I didn't mean to sell that short. Sorry. My buddy Ryan Daly screaming into his little iPod at me right now. But uh, for more on Black Canary, check out Ryan Daly's podcast, Power of Fishnets. Uh, and also for Action Comics Weekly, you can check out the Action Weekly Comics podcast by Chad Bokelman. Both Ryan and Chad are past guests of this show. There's just a now, podcast for everything these days. There is. You name it, there's probably, sh- I, I bet you there's, if you look, there's probably podcasts about all your work out there too. So oh, God. Uh, you don't want to listen to them though, because us nerds get all up in our, our, in people's grill all the time. So <laughs> now the next book, we're going to look into the future. What you want to tell us about it? Well, this is a good one. Animal Man number one by Grant, Grant Morrison, Chaz Trog, and Brian Ball on covers. This is probably a, a real turning point for me personally for what DC was going to become over the next decade. Grant, sure. Mor- Grant Morrison, hugely important influential creator, good friend of mine. And this was for me the first time I'd ever read anything that he'd ever written. I didn't, I had no access to his uh, work in 2000 AD, didn't know about Zenith, none, none of that, had no idea. For me, I picked this up off the shelf the week it came out and said, all right, Animal Man, cool. I'd loved Animal Man. I remembered him from the Forgotten Heroes, always thought that he was a character with a lot of potential. And wouldn't you know it, this goddamn genius comes out, Scottish genius, <laughs> and it exploits exactly that same potential in the first issue of what became a groundbreaking series. Just Grant's run alone uh, was was great in itself, but he was even followed up by other great writers like Peter Milligan. They mm-hmm. came in and did their, their run on Animal Man, but uh, this was the first, and this was about seven months prior to uh, the launch of JLE, in which Animal Man was a member, but uh, this was the start. This was the start, and you didn't even know how seminal this issue was when you when you first bought it, but uh, seminal it turned out to be. Well, and obviously DC saw the potential because as I understand the story, and I'm just speaking from apocryphal here, <laughs> is that it was originally commissioned as a four-issue mini, and then they immediately saw the potential here and said, no, we're going to make this an ongoing. That's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. That is absolutely okay. correct. I, uh, I found it on issue 9 when they did the, the JLE uh, come to the house and set up the teleporter and all that. Right. I was like, oh, well, it's connected to JLE. I'll read this. Oh my God, what am I reading? This yeah. is amazing. And then immediately went back, you know, number, issue number five. I mean, who didn't just sit there and read issue number five with the coyote over and over and over and go, comics can do this? Oh right. my God. Yep. This is amazing. Completely changed the format. God, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps here. That comic was so good. I well, so I mean, issue five, it changed Grant as well. I mean, the, the first four issues, as good as they are, are very much of that era. Mm-hmm. When they told him to, to keep going with it, he immediately made a break with those stylistic things that he was doing to try to fit in with the Alan Moores and the Neil Gaimans and the you know, the other British invasion writers of that time. But issue number five is where Grant became Grant, I think. I, I could totally see that. And, and I'm going to I'm gonna digress for a second more, just I want to talk more about stuff like this. I, I followed him then to Doom Patrol. I didn't start on Doom Patrol until issue 26. Wow. Brotherhood of Dada, you know, which was, what, uh, six issues into his run, or seven issues. It started with Brotherhood of Dada, blew my mind to the point where, like, in school I was doing projects on Dadaism and ah. stuff like that simply because that comic led me to that I mean wow such oh you know what I want to go back to the 80s I really do now wait a um, minute let me di- a digression on your digression you're saying okay. you were not there for the the Doom Patrol relaunch with Kupperberg and Steve Lytle and then Eric Larson you didn't you weren't around no. any of that wow what the hell I, I missed it I, it just wasn't my bag I was too busy reading Firestorm I guess uh, <laughs> Firestorm and, and Justice League I guess it would be was this uh, I don't know which Justice League it would have been at that point because I don't know my all my years lining up but no, I was um, I was too busy reading other books at that point. I was still reading a lot of Marvel at that point. 
you know, you talked earlier about Marvel sort of being where you started. When I was a kid, I always thought Marvel was the training ground, like it was was the, the junior books as you read those and then became a DC fan. Then I got older and realized that I love all of it, but. <laughs> That's great. So, well, let, let's dip our toe, sort of, as we did with Animal Man, where we peeked into the future, because really, you know, he's not in the JLE yet. But same thing with Secret Origins number 30. Elongated Man has a story in Secret Origins number 30. His origin, uh, written by Gerard Jones, art by the amazing Ty Templeton and Grant Meehan. Uh, again, seven months too early for Justice League Europe, but I, I had to mention because it's Ralph and it's Ty Templeton, and it's just wonderful. Lots of fun. Yes, a lot of fun to see an elongated man not crying over his dead wife. Oh, <laughs> see, one of the joys about this podcast is I just like to say that never happened. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love Identity Crisis as a story. It really is a, a great read, but it just didn't happen, you know, for me. Just like uh, Infinite Crisis where, where whatever happened with Max and Ted. I don't even know what that is. It didn't happen either. So. <laughs> I think I'm with you on this. The Super Buddies. I'm, the Super Buddies is where it's at, man, because they, they just kind of ignore that piece of continuity. That's um, right. Since we're pimping JLE members, what what the hell? We got one more. Uh, Secret Origins Annual Number 2 featuring the origin of Wally West as the Flash by William Messner Loeb's Michael T. Collins and Frank McLaughlin. It's a bit of a funky story, but still, it's Wally's uh, Secret Origin and Annual Number 2. And for more information on Secret Origins, you can actually check out our podcast that's wrapped up now, but a Secret Origins podcast, again, by Ryan Daly. Yes, there is a podcast for everything. <laughs> Good. In fact, I'm going to prove that right now, because we're going to take a quick podcast promo break of these amazing podcasts that are out there. We'll play a couple of those, and when we come back, we're finally going to talk about Justice League International Number 17, unless we want to talk more about Grant Morrison, then we're going to do that. <laughs> Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are fucking kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away. From 1977 to 1986, Marvel Comics published comics based on the blockbuster movie hit Star Wars. Hey, I remember that comic. But Star Wars was not the only comic Marvel published based on someone else's property. Really? Tell me more. I will. I'll tell you much more in podcast form. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, a podcast covering Marvel's licensed publishing during the first Star Wars era. Like what? Well, Star Wars, of course. Of course. And Micronauts. Classic. Rom. Space Knight. Better than it should be. Shogun Warriors. No idea what it is, but it sounds awesome. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've heard of that. Star Trek. Motion picture era, isn't it? Godzilla. That was a comic. Man from Atlantis. So, Aquaman. Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wait. Really? That's a thing? A human fly. What? He was a real-life stuntman. You're just making stuff up now, aren't you? I wish I were. And there's much, much more. Anyway, join comic book fan, collector, and writer Ben Avery as he explores the good, the bad, and the ugly of Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, found wherever you catch your podcasts and on the web at comicbooktimemachine.com. 
And we're back, folks. And remember, if you want to follow along, as always, I will post some of the images from this issue up on our gallery page. I'm not going to post them all, folks. Go buy the damn comic. Jeez, OP, quit asking me to do everything for you. But go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Go up to the JLI show. There you'll find the gallery post where I'll pick a few images from what Joe and I are going to talk about to kind of highlight the discussion. You can kind of relive that. Or, again, just go buy the freaking comic. Or get the omnibus, for God's sakes. What's your problem? Anyway, we are going to be talking about Justice League International number 17 from DC Comics, cover date of September 1988, cover price 75 cents three shiny quarters oh my gosh i miss comics when they're wow. at that price cover is by kevin mcguire and joe rubenstein which is a bit of a change usually i was uh kevin and al gordon inking him joe, so joe inked him on this cover uh you want to describe the cover for the folks at home well you know speaking of names i've never known how to say this this guy's name <laughs> it sounds kind of crude if you say it wrong <laughs> yeah Juan Jinda, Juan Gina, Juan Jinja, Juan Jinja. What is it? What is it? I don't. I don't get it. What is it? I, I think the answer is all the above. Okay. I say Juan Jinna, but I am, as I proved just today, uh, I'm horrible at pronouncing everything. Yeah. Well, you know what? Juan Jinna will go with that. There we go. And it's a, a very tight close-up of Juan Jinna frying Blue Beetle's skull, frying his face off. Now, it's a great cover. The art's great, but it's one of those curious covers that depicts a moment or a scene that is absolutely 100% not in the comic at all. <laughs> well, it almost was. It almost was. <laughs> well, I feel like more it's like you, you ever uh, hear the uh, famous National Lampoon magazine cover where they got the, 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 the dog at gunpoint. If you don't buy this issue, we're going to shoot this dog. Oh, yeah, like yeah. This is a threat to the reader. Buy this comic or we're going to fry Blue Beetle's skull. <laughs> You know, before I actually read this issue, because I, I came to JLI late. I started, I didn't start to like issue 42, Whoa. believe it or not, and then worked. I know, it's stupid. I was reading Justice League Europe from issue one. Again, this is during my like, I'm a big boy now phase, where I'm like, I don't want to read funny comics. So, because Justice League Europe was the serious one, supposedly. So I was reading Justice League Europe the whole way. Finally ca caught up with Justice League America 42. I'm like, this is amazing! Immediately went back, bought them all. And before I ever read this issue, this cover always kind of confused me. I didn't realize what his powers were. And it, Juan Jenna's, and it looks like there's strings kind of coming off of beetle's head i didn't get that that's my own hang-up i realize i'm stupid but i just didn't see it the right way but now that i know it it's really creepy i mean it's gross you can see the skin bubbling and the corrosive touch and one jenna just looks like a sloth gone horribly wrong from goonies it's 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 creepy it's yeah. unsettling absolutely it has the one electrode coming out of his head and the other side of his face is sort of hidden from camera it's and but it's it looks pretty messed up but i'm surprised you didn't immediately key into the searing flesh and bubbling uh, cheekbones you know that, that's a that's a good tip off that it's not just he's not just hanging from strings there i wasn't a very bright kid let's just put it that way <laughs> i'm not a very bright adult either actually <laughs> although last issue all right now i'm going to toot my own horn here last episode we did the cover and it was the james bond cover you know with, with uh, bruce wayne and um and, and fire and everyone else apparently for the last 30 years thought the other woman was ice according to the comments everyone thought that was ice when clearly it was queen bee so sometimes i pay attention sometimes I'm a moron. There you go. There you go. My wife would agree with that completely. <laughs> Here's your credits for you. Plot and breakdown by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler Kev McGuire. Inker Al Gordon. Letter Bob LePan. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. Editor Andy Helfer. And the issue is called Only the Dead No Bialya. I can't say that word either. You want to walk us through the first half of the comic, Joe? Well, it, it opens with Captain Adam whining like a bitch to Oberon. <laughs> 
uh, about not being part of this mission that is happening in Bialya at this at this point in time. You know, this is again some of the uh, patented Demetrius bickering between JLA uh, JLI members, which always seems to end with somebody being very hurt by an off the cuff insult. In this case, it's Obron being taking offense to being called a little nitwit, which I feel like is a bit sensitive on Obron's part. The guy's in show business, right? I think he's got to be have been called a lot worse in his day. And does you really care what Captain Adam thinks anyway? I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. But it's also got a great, one of my favorite kind of signature shots from this period of, of, of Justice League is the overhead monitor room shot where you see the checkerboard floor tiles. Yeah. You, you know, love those, even though they're as gaudy as it, as, as it gets and why you would have those, that particular floor in a superhero headquarters of any kind. Is completely beyond me. So anyway, from there we we cut to Bialya, where the queen bee, who's saddled with that unfortunate name, is kind of outlining <laughs> outlining her ambitions to what seems to be a very nervous jack o' lantern, who is a I guess you could say a refugee superhero from the uh, Global Guardians. Yep. And you know I'm thinking that they're sleeping together, but she clearly is you know on top. She's she she's the one on top. No uh, doubt. And he is. Uh, just kind of along for the ride. She is. She seems very confident, very, very sure of herself. What she doesn't know, or maybe she does know, that she's being spied on, I guess we could say, by Batman, who is undercover at the moment as Sam Neill. I mean, sorry, Max Lord. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, who's holed up the, with the green flame in their hotel. And a, as usual, as, as a, a great Batman move, he totally splits on her. Right. I'm going to go go check some things out, going to go check on Beetle and Booster. And you, you just stay here. And if you don't, you're out of the league, which was his favorite threat, you know, or Early on, if you don't do this, you're out of the league. If you don't do what I say, you're out of the league. And it seemed to work every time. Kind of shows why his outsiders teammates liked him so much, probably. Yeah, yeah. So he heads off. Now we join up with Beetle and Booster Gold in jail, shirtless and unshaven, which really shows that they're, uh, you know, they've, they've spent some time in the cell. And it also proves that when superheroes go out and do their superhero thing, they always work in a shave. Yeah. Because a couple of days out of costume and, and the five o'clock shadow is, is rocking. <laughs> um, but luckily, Booster has a plan to get them out of jail. Uh, because the guard took his Legion flight ring, he's able to telepathically slam him into the bars, get his keys, get his gun, and they're able to free themselves. Very, very, very clever way to, to, to get out of jail. Now, from there, we finally get a sense of what the Queen Bee's plot is, her, her master plan, which is apparently to have sleeper agents that will be under her mind control, including, oddly enough, Jim Neighbors, who for some reason... <laughs> Is in by Elliot's time. I guess he's doing some sort of concert for the other dignitaries that are there, doing his kind of hillbilly, sings opera, you know, shtick that he was known for. Um, and they even get in a nice Gomer Pyle joke, you know, which I guess is uh, you got to do if you're dealing with gym neighbors. And well, you're, uh, you're missing the obvious connection. Shazam! Ah, right. Except, well, see, I didn't make that connection because Captain Marvel's out of the book at this point. So, uh but it's, Prime. but it's a good one. And so apparently thinking that Maxwell Lord, who she thinks is in the country, is going to be one of these sort of slaves, these uh, drones that she's going to have under her control. She thinks that this is going to somehow 
establish some power base from which she's going to, I don't know, rule the world. That plot line never really plays out as far as I can tell. But, um, you know, it, it's good to see. It's good to see. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because it just gets dropped. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess she has all these pol- politicians and businessmen in places all over the world, I'm, I suppose. Yeah. In the DC universe, Jim Neighbors is, is sort of a sleeper <laughs> agent. Or the Queen Bee, you know. <laughs> so we we go back out into the streets of Bialia, apparently, where, uh, you know, Batman, Beetle, and Booster are going to go back to his hotel, apparently, to, to uh, retrieve the, uh, you know, green flame, get her out of there. They don't have to because she literally drops into uh, their arms as they're right outside the hotel in her underwear, by the way. Um <laughs> And it's not, you know, as as it would become just a few years later, this was not as gratuitous as you would think because of Giffen's layouts and how McGuire interpreted them. It's fairly subtle that she's in her underwear. The more, more less subtle, I guess, is Booster and Beetle's expressions when they're behind her. So that's interesting. <laughs> that's a way to put it. We'll and, talk more about that on the back end. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. No pun intended. Um, oh! Again, Batman goes solo, and in a very cool 12-panel grid page, which was unusual for Giffen uh, at, at this time, he dispatches with some some other some jokester Bialian guards and sort of recon- reconnects with his other teammates just in time for Juan Gina to show up in the alley for some reason. He just kind of appears in this alleyway, and Beetle recognizes him from way back in Justice League issue two, classic issue where they first go to Bialia. And before you know it, this uh, mind-controlled Wanjinda attacks, a pretty devastating attack, and apparently he can throw explosions. He's sort of like a living reactor. And right. it's a it's a very cool splash page where they're all in silhouette and this explosion going on. Again, not as in-your-face as comics would become just a few years later. But still, still very effective. I, I give it up. It's the big, it's the big action moment of the of the issue. I think it's a great kapow moment, without a doubt. It's yeah. gorgeous. So I'll take it from here. So the the explosion sends our heroes flying in all directions, mm-hmm. leaving them barely conscious. And as the mutated Wanjina is moments from murdering Blue Beetle with his corrosive touch, which is a hint to the cover, which he, he does reach to go kill Blue Beetle, but doesn't quite get there because there's a shocking shakrack rings out. Our favorite blue hero, who's named after a bug, is surprisingly saved by Captain Adam. Yes, the Quantum Leaguer has arrived on the scene to stop one Jenna. So there's a fierce and explosive battles pitch. Captain Adam is the only one left standing. Now, Batman is very unhappy with Captain Adam's interference, in that he acted against orders by coming to Bialya. And then the Queen Bee arrives during this discussion, and Batman is uh, hes prepared to put a stop to Queen Bee's coup, actually, but she remains very smugly confident when the people of Bialya demonstrate their love for their new queen. And given her popular support, there really isn't much the JLI can do. So, against their better judgment, they decide not to challenge her new regime, and the Queen Bee graciously allows the JLI to leave, coyly remarking that it's too early in her reign to concern herself with international incidents. And as they depart, uh, the former teammates, which are Green Flame and now the evil Jack O'Lantern, they exchange some unpleasant words as well. Meanwhile, in deep space aboard the cluster ship, Elron, our buddy the robot, who he's now trying out some new robotic fashions for this from the spring line, uh, Elron informs Lord Manga Khan that their prisoner, Mr. Miracle, is actually a new god from New Genesis. 
MangaCon dramatically announces that the cluster is to set course for, insert dramatic pause here, Apocalypse, because perhaps Darkseid will barter with them now. Also in deep space, but nowhere near the cluster, are our heroes, Martian Manhunter, Big Barter, Rocket Red, and Norse, if you can call him a hero. And they're continuing their search for the cluster and the captive Mr. Miracle. Now, last issue, the cluster escaped into hyperspace, leaving our heroes with no way to follow them. Now, Big Barter is using technology from her beta club to upgrade the ship's capabilities, giving them access to boom tubes so they may continue the pursuit and attempt to rescue her husband. Next issue, where no league has gone before. Woof! Wow. All right, sir. So we talked on the front end about you don't like the jokey league necessarily as much as you like the more action-y, adventure sort of thing. Where do you feel this issue falls in? Well, I think it's uh, it's pretty jokey, but it's it's one of those issues where the characters' reactions are a little more immature than 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 you'd think they would be. So they're they're definitely leaning into um, they're leaning into the comedy here. But on top of that, you can also tell that Giffen and Dimitrius and 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 McGuire. They're kind of winging it. They're making it up as they go along. They're kind of falling back on their considerable levels of craft to make everything work. I mean, this this thing should not work as well as it does. Okay. You know? Explain. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, what I know about, uh, Keith Giffen, he never had really master plans. He would just kind of just go with what felt right. And of course, Demetrius is the dialogue guy was just trying to hang on. Right. And I, you know, I do sort of, obviously I know how the sausage is made, but knowing that kind of makes me love this even more that they were able to keep it keep it up even though you know there were moments where like how are we going to get out of this where are we going <laughs> where, where are we going to go with this thread you know because i think that the whole people love the queen bee so that the you know the justly can't really do much is such a convenient way to kind of wrap it up right uh every time the justly goes to Bialia, they 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 just are very ineffectual if you if you think about it that's pretty true. They never really kind of make it happen in Bahalia. They just kind of go over there, kind of try to make make things right, and they never quite do, you know? Obviously, some of that's to keep the dangling plots going. But, you know, maybe there's something to be said for their, their ability as international, you know, peacekeeping force isn't really in the cards for them. It could be, could be the issue as well. Well, I mean, again, I think that this is really – an issue like this is part of what I call J- JLI's middle act. There's really three acts to the whole gift. And Demetrius run. Okay. Act one is really just the first twelve issues. Fair enough. They're barely escaping with their, you know, sanity, getting out of that Maxwell Lord quote unquote mystery. Right. Um, <laughs> Which they had no idea about when they were writing it. Exactly. Act two is basically thirteen through twenty-three, which is this kind of let's let's play with the with the different teams. They they do some really classic Justice League stuff where they they break the teams off into sub teams. I mean, it's in this issue right here. You've got the the guys in Bahalia, you've got the guys in space. And that happened over the course of like six issues. And then Act Three is basically issue twenty four, the you know, Justice League going back to Justice League America and the advent of Justice League Europe mm-hmm. basically until the end of the run. There's that's a long act three. A bit that's a big ass act three. But uh, nonetheless, if you're if you believe in three act structure, that's exactly what it was. So I, I can't argue with you. You're right. Yeah. So this is this is definitely act two material. But listen, I'm a big fan of act twos. So, you know, despite I can nitpick anything to death, 
this is a great issue. This is a real good example of what worked about this series. Absolutely. And I think you're probably right. I bet when they wrote uh, the issue before the 16, when they put them in Bialya with all those problems, they probably didn't know how they were going to write themselves out of it. Uh, as you said, they were kind of winging it as they went. I like that you mentioned the Act 2 stuff, because, I mean, truthfully, superhero comics sort of live in Act 2. Yes. You know, really, that, that's where that's where, the, that's where they want Superman and Spider-Man and folks like that to always exist, is Act 2. That's how they stay continuous forever. Yeah. I mean, I think that, not to, not to jump too far ahead, but I think that when they realized that their Act 3 was kind of going on a little long, then they mm-hmm. they sort of doubled down on the Act 3-ness with the whole breakdowns storyline. Right. But they were there, kind of there already. And even those guys admitted they might have stayed maybe a year too long. You know? right. But again, that is 2020 hindsight right there. I mean, this is still, to me, state-of-the-art superhero comics of that time, you know? It, it changed the way people wrote comic books. I mean, people weren't doing funny superhero books like this where it was still i mean they, they would do straight up parody like super duper man and you know mad magazine and whatnot but this this fine line of having an action comic with a lot of humor you know almost the i don't know the star wars formula where you've got a lot of action and some humor mixed in whatever it really changed the way comics were in the 80s that's for sure now i've got two little side notes about about this this comic one is well, i got a, I got a, i got a ton so you go ahead well <laughs> just i mean they just have more to do with my own career one is that my first issue, Adventure of Superman, that I wrote solo, was about Bialya. I took took Superman to Bialya and did a one issue story where he dealt with the dictatorship of the of that time. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's where I got Bialya was from. Just- oh my gosh, uh, I haven't read that in so many years. I, I didn't, I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. In fact, you, you know, you always got to tie, you always got to incorporate the name of the country into the story title. So while this issue is called. Only the Dead Know by Elia. My mm-hmm. issue of Adventure Superman was Don't Cry for Me by Elia. <laughs> and, and so uh, who, was, who was the dictator at that point? I, you know what? I, I know other comics better than I know my own. I don't even remember who the guy That's was. That's so funny. Okay. It was when Lex was president. I think Lex sent Superman over to deal with a journalist who was a, a political prisoner over there, an American journalist. But it ended up being kind of a setup. Luther wanted to kind of set Superman up to get into this political incident. It was, it was very high-minded for Superman, I have to say. I'm impressed. I, that that year or two, or however many, or I guess it was several years, where Lex was president was actually really, really good. I it really enjoyed that era. Yeah, so I, not that I want to compliment you and swell your head more than I already have. But well, the Lex uh, is president thing was not my idea, so feel free to 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 rain praise all over it. I just came in and took advantage of it. Now, the other thing I was going to say was that mm-hmm. part of the impetus for this story, and especially the issue previous, is that M- Kevin McGuire is a huge James Bond fan. Right. Enormous. And I worked with I've worked with Kevin on a couple of one shots here and there. But the first time I worked with him was on an issue of Gen 13 for Wildstorm. It was okay. be a fill in issue. And when they gave gave me the gig and said Kevin was going to be drawing it, I got in touch with Kevin. Obviously, I gushed the waxed his car for like 10 minutes just saying I'm a huge <laughs> fan. But then I said, what do you like? What do you want to draw? Because I hadn't written the issue yet. And I wanted to give him something that he was excited about. And he told me two things, James Bond and wrestling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so if you go back and look at that issue of Gen 13 we did together, first of all, the cover is he's doing a direct homage to himself. It's a, it's a direct rip off of uh, justice league 16. Oh really? Oh okay. yeah. 
And uh, so there, so there's a James Bondian kind of secret agent in the story and wrestlers. So I, I, I was able to give him exactly what he wanted, you know. But I knew he'd done it before, and he did it in this Justice League storyline. Oh, my God. I That's have, amazing. I have to think that in hanging around in the DC office that, you know, he might have said to, you know, Keith at least, say, hey, can we do some James Bondian kind of thing? Because I really dig James Bond, and lo and behold, he got he got it. You got it, yeah. You got to think those two happened that way. It'd just be too much of a coincidence if it didn't. And they all were feeding off each other, so you would think that probably did. Yeah. Now to wax McGuire's car here a little bit more. I I really feel like this is the issue where he got a handle on Captain Adam physically how he looks. Yeah. Because before Ca- Captain Adam didn't quite look right. Uh, and a lot of it too was a lot of the creators, they, they, they've said in interviews, I'm not, I'm not bashing, I'm bagging on them here, but they said they, you know, when they were given a new character like Booster Gold or Captain M, they didn't really know the character that well when they got him. And they were just figuring it out as they went. That's why a lot of times their earlier appearances, the characters didn't really feel like the characters or whatever. Here, I feel like Captain M, the shininess looks great. He looks phenomenal throughout it. And I feel like his kind of his attitude and his brusqueness, it feels to Lee, at least to me, a little more true to Captain Adam, like his threatened ego and stuff. I dig that. It's interesting. The visual there is, there, you know, at that time, 87, 88, there were two Captain Adams in a sense. There was the Broderick Captain Adam who drew him a mm-hmm. certain way with the sort of the, the cross hatching ink line. It gave him a certain kind of texture. And then there's the Maguire Captain Adam who went for completely polished chrome shininess. But they are two, two totally different takes on that character. I, I mean, I love them both, but they, Maguire certainly wasn't looking at, uh, Pat Broderick's Captain Adam going, I'm going to do that. He was doing his right. own thing. When Bart Sears cranks it up another notch when you get to JLE, I mean, oh, really yeah. super shiny there. Oh yeah. Which I love that too. Oh yeah. I got to mention Oberon in that cute little sweater. Like there's this world crisis. Everyone's in peril and Oberon's just wearing this adorable little sweater, which I just, I don't know. I find the, 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 the comparison of those two just hilarious. Maybe That's a do. Cosby sweater right there. <gasps> it totally is a Cosby sweater. You are so right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, you mentioned the graffiti in the cell with Beetle and Booster. I just want to point this out to you guys. I'll make sure this is on the the, the, the website. But it, it's Beetle sitting there, and there's a, a graffiti over his head that says sucker and an arrow pointing to him. There's phone numbers written on the wall, and it says for a good time call, blah, blah, blah. And it says ask for Canary because you know she's going to kill somebody if they yeah. call her. Yeah. Just totally crack me up. Now, it is important. I, I do have to mention here, and I mentioned it last episode a little bit too. Folks, you need to just put a little... Uh, a bookmark in your brain here for this issue because Beetle and Booster are in jail together in Bialya and it's going to take about, I don't know, something like nine months for this to pay off. But you got to remember that they were held against their will in Bialya. Interesting, it won't affect Booster as much as it does Beetle. But, uh, that's, you know, we talked earlier about funny, funny, funny gut punch. That's the gut punch. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about Queen Beast's plan working and, and no one stopping it, you know. And we talked a little about Jack O'Lantern and you talked about their relationship in there. As I read this, I have a slightly different take in that I think he's also brainwashed. The sad part is he knows it. He knows he's because, you know, he was a hero for a long time. Why would he turn evil? Well, it makes sense if, if what they're saying here is that she brainwashed him and sadly left him with the knowledge that she brainwashed him and he can't fight it, which is just horribly depressing for that guy. I feel so bad. For him. Well, yeah, but I think he's under the, a different kind of spell, let's say. I think uh, 
<laughs> you, heard, you know, I, I won't say, but it's the power of the, you, you know, fill in the blank there. Yes. That I think is more uh, the control that he's under. And listen, I, I, not that I blame him. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I will say something about Jacqueline. I mean, again, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll get some somebody hating on me for this. But I was never a huge fan of Fire and Ice in the JLI. What? I know. I know. I, but I, you know, again, putting on my what if they did this hat, my writer. Had. Okay. I, I thought Jack O'Lantern was much more interesting. I would have, I, I would have much preferred him actually being on the team than either Fire Ice. And I'm not saying I wouldn't want him, you know, dating Guy Gardner or anything, but. <laughs> I thought he was a just much cooler character. But I listen, I, I having said that, I understand the need. Black Canary ditched the team. They needed some um, Y chromosomes. Absolutely true. Fire and the sausage party, no doubt. Yeah, they, they did the trick, and they were characters that Giffen and, and, and uh, JM could have control over. So I, I get it, totally get it. But for me personally, see, you know, rereading this and – I just I think Jack O'Lantern's a cool. He was always my favorite of those Global Guardian characters. Hmm. Let's see. You work for Man of Action Entertainment, <laughs> or I'm sorry, you helped create Man of Action Entertainment. You have another guy that sits probably a couple desks over you, named Steven Siegel, and he wrote a comic called Primal Force featuring Jack O'Lantern. I think you're biased, sir. I'm just I, saying. I'll I'll cop to that right now. I'll, I'll cop to that. <laughs> That was a good damn comic, too, by the way. A seagull knows a good character when he sees one. That's all I can say. <laughs> so speaking of characters, all right, let's talk about Batman here. Because you mentioned the fight, the the 12-panel grid, which is freaking awesome. Uh, that had to be Giffen sort of playing around here as he's as he's honing in on that nine-panel style. In last issue, we didn't see the fight. They, they turned off the lights, and Batman kicked all the ass in the dark. And here we actually get to see the fight. It looks great. But does Batman feel, if you think about the dialogue, does he feel like Batman in this issue? Because he's saying things like, um, let's see, he says things like, you wouldn't, he's talking to the Queen Bee, he says, you wouldn't know a decent impulse if it punched you square in the jaw. Now, and, and keep in mind, we're looking at Maxwell Lord's face when we read this, because he's in disguise. I, what, am I alone here, or you tell me? No, well, you're, you're forgetting at the end of that fight where he's, Kind of, uh, savoring the guys, this, in, you know, not an innocent guy, but just a normal human, you know, guard. He says, uh, you know, look at him down there, legs broken, writhing in pain. Maybe I should go back and help him. Nah, that's pretty sadistic. That's even, true. Even for Batman, that's pretty sadistic. You're right. You're right. Good call. Now, we probably need to talk about fire or Beatrice, whatever you wish to call her, in her underwear. You, you sort of touched on a little bit. No joke intended there, but. Is it gratuitous or not? You you said it's not gratuitous. I've read some stuff on the internet where people felt it was. I did a little research on this. I help me out here. The, the, obviously, I mean, the first page she is hanging out all over the place, but that's to sort of establish she's wearing underwear. Do you, so your your argument is you feel like it's not gratuitous. Is that correct? Well, I think that the storytelling style mutes it a little bit. I think it's as gratuitous as McGuire was able to get away with. Okay, but do I is it gratuitous? Yes, of course. If you put the the, the female in her underwear, that's that's gratuitous, just top to bottom. Again, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> but they did soften it to some degree, and and they didn't uh, they didn't make a lot out of it. I mean, they were right. they, you know they used it to show how despicable uh, Beetle and Booster are capable of being. So it was the gratuitous nature of it was in service to a character joke. Doesn't mean it wasn't still gratuitous, but I think the fact that 
the way that McGuire draws and the way the storytelling uh, plays out. I mean, listen, if this had been 1993, you know, mm-hmm. God help us, it would have been borderline pornography. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're right. So and every shot would have been a, a close up and it would have been a thong. It would have just been a whole mess. Yes, there would have been, you know, spine twisting things that would not have been physically <laughs> capable by any human being, you know, you would have those poses. And, you know, if you know, they're on um, page uh, 10. There's again, there's the sort of wide shot of all four of them in the in the alleyway. And McGuire kind of has her in this kind of posy pose, you know, got her your hand in her hair, kind of one hip you know, checked out a little bit, but again, Mm -hmm. it's from so far away. You can't quite nail him for it because, you know, it's not, it's not completely in our face, but again, sure. Ken McGuire, especially back then was just a red blooded American male. He was getting what he could when he could. And, you know, (laughs) I guess not going to blame him for it, but it's definitely there. Now I'm going to give an argument to help back up what you're saying. Not specifically about the art, because it it is a bit gratuitous, but you know what? It's, as you said, it's not, it could be a lot worse, but where I'm going with this is from the script perspective of the way they write the character because one of the traits as, as I'm seeing because I always think I, I think of fire I think of sex that's how they that's how the character exists in this comic book but as I read it now I'm starting to realize really sex is another tool for her you know her sexiness her flirting it's one of her powers almost that she uses to help control the situation she's not dumb she's brilliant she's very very smart she's a former spy and she uses sex to control the situation and I think that's probably okay and if you look at other representation in the same issue you've got Queen Bee who's completely covered head to toe. I mean, you can't see, you can barely see any of her skin and yet she is completely controlling every situation she's in. She's the dominant force in every room. Then you look at Barda who again fully clothed head to toe and she's using her her brains to solve the day with the mega rod. So I think there's great representation of female characters in the comic and I think Fire is just that's the angle they take with her. When I when I look at it from that sort of picture I feel better about Fire's repre- representation of the book instead of thinking I'm just some skeevy dork. I mean my name's Irredeemable shag for god's sakes of course i'm looking at fire in the underwear um <laughs> but it makes me feel a little less skeevy when i look at the other representation in the issue so well i you know i would agree with everything you said except for one thing about fire is that where when batman bails on her early in the issue mm-hmm. and then I, I i blame this on Demetrius. unfortunately the button of the scene is her saying what did i ever see in that cowed you know uh cretin mm-hmm. which is sort of intimating that she did have some feelings for Batman, like a crush on Batman early on. And I just kind of wish in retrospect that that had not been in the scene at all. It would have, she would have been a stronger character if, 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 like you say, she just understood that she could use her sexuality as a weapon, and but it was all business. But the fact that that last scene button kind of betrays that, oh, she actually had some kind of crush on Batman, kind of takes away from that a little bit for me. Well, and I know you reread this issue in preparation. What you may not have looked at was the issue before, which is where she straight up tries to seduce Batman twice. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. Okay. So I kind of like this line because it sort of puts a close to that because I don't want that to be an ongoing issue where she's always coming on to Batman. If they did it, they did it. But this closes it out. So I kind of felt like a that's over kind of feeling for me. I, I do so. agree with that, too. Yeah. Better to just kind of nip it in the bud than have it be this thing that drags out. Right. And by the way, there's another scene where she's hanging all over Ted again, just like she was last issue. It's not in the script. And I wonder if McGuire was trying to sort of push Fire and Blue Beetle together through the story organically. Because uh, two issues in a row, she's kind of hanging all over him, like in a friendly way but physically arms around thing. Well, maybe she just sees him as absolutely no uh, 
you know, no <laughs> chance whatsoever. So why not? You know, he's in the friend zone, folks. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, uh, hats off to Demetrius. Great usage of the word harangue. Wow. Well done, sir. It's probably where I learned the word. I probably like read this comic and then went and got a dictionary. I bet. Yeah. But more importantly, in that same scene, Captain Adam fighting Wanjina. Um, did Captain Adam totally kill him? Because if he did, why aren't we talking about that? Uh, well, yeah, but you know, he's remember he's a military man, so death in combat means a whole different thing to him. I guess so, but it's still a superhero comic. I mean, I looked up one Jenna's future appearances. He shows up in flashbacks after this. <laughs> so I'm like, oops. Yeah, he did. He toasted him. Oh yeah, no, he's gone. That that pan that uh, first panel on uh, page 15, he's exploding. He's, right. And those are bits of him uh, kind of raining down on the others, you know. Ugh. He's joined the Choir Invisible, folks. Yeah. Uh, oof. Nasty, nasty, nasty. Okay. Well, uh, my only other comments here, you know, I love the start, the continued Star Trek jokes, and they make joke about Wrath of Khan, which always makes me happy. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. We get where no league has gone before, so I'm assuming it's Demetrius that's the big Star Trek fan and through all, the, all this. And then that last page with that boom tube, uh, it's not a full page splash, but it's like, you know, maybe a third of a page. It's really effective with all yeah. the beams of light coming out in every direction. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And it's rare that, uh, again, this is one of these things that McGuire did so well. And again, having no obvious precedence, there was a way to draw the boom tube and it all came from Kirby. But everyone mm-hmm. who drew it, drew it that same way. It looked like that sort of inside of a silo with these kind of vector graphic, you know, lines in it, concentric circles or whatnot. And this was a, this was not that. And it might have been the first time I'd ever seen a boom tube drawn not in that way. Mm. You know? Uh, and it works. It works great. And I think, you know, bravo to, to Kevin McGuire for not just doing what everybody had done before. And it still works. You still know exactly what happened, you know, and still has the big boom sound effect. So it's, you know, it's, it's fine. But I just, that struck me as like, wow, another example of him breaking from the past just in his stylistic choices. That's a good point because, you know, by this point, Super Friends uh, had, was off the air. But those last two seasons, you got Dark Side every week. You know, he was, you know, the, the, the bad guy every single episode. And there were constantly boom tubes. And so, I mean, and the cartoon was certainly watched by more people than were reading comics. So you, you have sort of in the public consciousness this way it's supposed to look. And yet, yeah, Kevin went a different direction. Yeah. It was cool. Well done. Well, I think that's the comic. I think the only thing left really to talk about here is the, is the house ads. Now, being that this comic was published in the month of May, that means it's summertime, which means advertising dollars are pouring in for zit cream and M&Ms. So, folks, we didn't get a lot of house ads from DC this time. We only got one. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about this one? It's a good one. It's the uh, it's the house ad for the Hawk and Dove miniseries, written by Carl and Barbara Kiesel. And it's Rob Liefeld's, not his debut at DC, but basically his big debut in the comic book industry. He'd done a couple of little short, like a secret origins, I think a nightshade secret origins Mm -hmm. before this, but this was his, this was his coming out party. And, uh, and I remember seeing this and I was all in. I was all in on Rob Liefeld. And, you know, <laughs> uh, Carl Kessel inking him certainly didn't hurt. The thing about Rob's art is that you could see if you were well versed in comics and comic book art, you knew, Rob, again, unlike Kevin McGuire, with Rob, you knew his influences right away. Art Adams, Michael Golden, Walt Simonson. Sure. They were, it was, and so if you like those artists, you're, you were predisposed to like Rob's art. And I certainly was one of the guys that did. And I was a big fan of Hawk, you know, without Dove. They, they, before, uh, 
what had led into this was about uh, about 18 months prior, there was a two-parter in Teen Titan Spotlight that was mm-hmm. by Mike Barron and and, uh, and uh, Jackson Geis. It was their kind of warm-up to doing the new Flash monthly, but it was a Hawk two-parter, and uh, Barron really doubled down on making Hawk this kind of conservative Republican asshole. Right. But, but I loved it. I loved that two-parter. It was, I, 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 to this day, I, I still go back and read it, and I think, man, that was a good comic. So I was all in on this miniseries. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And the female dove was a stroke of genius. I mean, that is it inspired. That, it was an inspired idea, without yeah, a doubt. Exactly how to make that dynamic work. I mean, they never worked before. Hawk and Dove had been around for, at that point, almost 20 years mm-hmm. and had never really hit, even in the Teen Titans, when they showed up together in the Teen Titans, you're like, oh, God, these two. But uh, <laughs> making Dove a female character, perfect. Tote worked completely. And it honestly, it probably would have kept going. You had a truncated life if it hadn't been for all the changes behind the scenes to Armageddon 2001. Yeah, agreed. Totally so. agree. Poor Hawk. Now, now, you're coming at this a little bit different. Now, I'm going to set a little bit of a stage here. Not not to, not to make an argument or anything here, but most of the people listening to this show are probably DC fans. Yeah. And DC fans in the 80s and 90s were probably not the biggest fans of Liefeld because, you know, he made a name for himself over at Marvel, went to Image. You're coming from a different perspective. You've probably worked with the man, I would assume, being your time at Image and things like that. I have worked with him several times, yeah. I've met him. He's extremely enthusiastic. I mean, he he would get me excited about stuff that I would have never thought from the times I met him and chatted with him. And I actually, at this point, when he's doing Hawk and Dove, I didn't read Hawk and Dove. Uh, I came to it later in life. When he was doing, shortly he moves over to New Mutants. His early New Mutant stuff is unbelievable. When he's got someone else inking him in those early days, those are some of my favorite comics he ever drew. I absolutely love them. The introduction of Cable, somebody who you know a little bit about, I think, right? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I owe him a lot for creating that guy. It gave me a gig 10 years later. <laughs> How long did you write Cable? I was on it for about uh, about two years. I wrote, okay. I, I wrote about, yeah, about uh, 20 issues of it. Wow. You got a movie coming up here then, too, right? Well, I, that's what they tell me. <laughs> So, all right, now, I, I know I'm digressing, but I, I, whatever. So how do you feel about the, what you see in the early scenes of Cable and stuff like that? As someone who used to write the character, now seeing it on screen, like, you know, because you were there, you were there in the early days, I mean, really with Cable. So w- w- how do you feel about it? Well, I, I think it's very cool. Josh Brolin's a great actor, so I think it's cool that he's playing the part. It's interesting that I, my time on that book and with that character was sort of a reaction to the early 90s big shoulder pad, big gun era. What we, what I did on, on my time with Cable was sort of stepping away from that and trying to legitimize the character as something beyond all the accoutrements that life felt at that time was sort of known to be, to have given him. He, he had become sort of a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but you know, the character was always solid. I mean, you know, aside from the fashion choices that Rob made at that time, which by the way, all of them, all of them have come back in, in style now. Yes, they have. But as with most things, they, they go in cycles. And my time on cable was in the cycle of let's try to move away from the shoulder pads and the pouches and the big guns and see if that character can, uh, still stand on his own. And as a matter of fact, he could very easily and very well, which is again, a testament to the strength of the character that Rob created. So it's, it's one of those characters that came out of the eighties that are still around today in publication, which is amazing. You know, 
And say what you will about the big pouches and the, and the shoulder pads and the guns and everything like that back in the day, but the comic industry spent the next 10 years chasing Rob's vision of Cable, basically. Yes. I mean, that's, that's what begat the 90s, is kind of what he started there. That's so. exactly right. I totally agree. Yeah. So, all right. So, yeah, that, that's the only really cool house head. We get a shadow house head in the back, but we've already covered that in previous episodes. I don't want to spend any time on it. Wow. So, um, you know what? We're going to, I'm, I'm going to sit back in my easy chair here for a minute. I'm going to make you do some of the work here, sir, in a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. This is where Joe is going to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. Not really an origin recap, but more about where these characters were in the DC Universe just before they joined the JLI, what kind of impact the JLI had on their careers. And um, in Joe's case, we figured, why not? Let's pick the girl in her underwear. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about Fire? Well, she uh, her real name is Beatrice DeCosta uh, with a Z, which is odd. I've never seen that before in any other version of that name, but we'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> uh, her debut was way back in 1979 in the Super Friends comic, issue 25, which I've never read. Uh, I was not. I haven't either, actually. I've been yeah. meaning to. Uh, Super Friends is not a, a comic that even I've I've not even been compelled to go back and collect it, even though. I know there are some issues that were been drawn by that were drawn by Alex Toth, which I'm right. sure are beautiful. But I've just never been compelled to go back. She was created by um, E. Nelson uh, Bridwell and artist Ramona Freydon, who is famous for creating Metamorpho. She, she's a fantastic artist. Had been around for decades. Right. I mean, she, that alone should be enough for us to get off our duff and finally read this book. Because I, I mean, I've wanted to for a while as I've heard good things about it. But whenever I hear Ramona Frayden's name, I'm like, oh my gosh, why haven't I read this? Yes. She, she's a fantastic, fantastic artist. So from, from her uh, debut in Super Friends, she was scooped up as part of the Global Guardians, which was this sort of team of global-based heroes, the sort of disparate heroes from the DC universe uh, that were brought together as this kind of worldwide superhero team, which never really got any traction anywhere except the occasional DC Comics Presents uh, guest spot. Right. But, you know, if you were a fan of sort of superheroes in general, they were always kind of interesting to look at. You're kind of like, you always wondered who the hell Dr. Mist was. Tasmanian <laughs> Devil was kind of cool. And, of course, Jack-O-Lantern, who we talked about. And, of course, then her she went from being the Green Fury to the Green Flame, and from that's when she uh, came into Justice League, Justice League International. As again, as we talked about before, I think that Giffen and, and Demetrius were looking for ways to fill out the cast, fill out the roster. And these were underused, underutilized, but perfectly conceptually sound characters that they could grab and have as their own. And as for what it did for Fire's, you know, visibility in the DCU, major impact. Mm -hmm. Shot her up into, like, at least you could say a B-level character from from Agreed. being a, basically a Z-level character. <laughs> uh, so much so that she went on to uh, appear in the often ridiculed and for good reason JLI, JLI live-action pilot. <sighs> That is rough, hard to watch, but she's in it. Uh, she is. She turned up in the animated ver as an animated version in Justice League Unlimited and in Batman Brave and Bold. 
probably better served in those TV shows than she was in the JLI pilot. And uh, I found out she was even showed up in the live action and ill-fated and not long for this world powerless live action NBC show that was on, I guess, last year. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was actually on since this show's been on the air. We, we were talking about it in the early episodes, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, being in this comic had a, gave her a very long, very, very healthy life as a, as a, uh, as a piece of DC IP. And it, it, if you look at what they've done with the character, they've done some other interesting things too. Like, like she was in Greg Rucka's Checkmate. They really leaned in hard on her spy angle for a while there. That's and right. They've done some, they've done some pretty cool things with the characters. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you for covering that, sir. Much appreciated. Sure. All this dancing around, all this waltzing we've been doing, Joe, it's time to go head to head, sir. It is time for what everyone's been waiting for. It is time to award the. Wahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Joe are going to pick one moment, and then we're going to duke it out to figure out who's going home with the coveted Wahaha Award. Joe, you're the guest, so what is your nomination for the Wahaha Award? Mine is much more subtle, I think, as a as a as a as a laugh moment. It's more ridiculous than anything else. It's the reveal of Wanjina, as <laughs> as we're trying to wrestle with his name. I mean, this is the confrontation of good guys versus ostensibly bad guys. And basically just kind of shows up in the alleyway like, hello, here I am. You know, he doesn't drop down from above. He doesn't burst out of a wall. He doesn't erupt out of the ground. There's not an explosion. And he kind of steps out. He's just kind of standing there like, you know, how's it going? I'm the mutated agenda and, and here I am. And while not a laugh out loud moment, I, to me, the sort of the ridiculousness of that moment is, 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 is what sealed the deal for me. That's, that's why I, I, that's my nomination and that's the reason why. Okay. All right. I can see that. I also like immediately following that Beetle then gives this huge exposition about who the character is. Yeah. And Batman, I don't remember the exact words. Batman says something like, enough about a story recap. Let's go. Yeah. So. Yeah. Spare us the history lessons. Is, uh, there it is. Uh, yes. That's good. All right. Mine is, uh, mine's a little more base again. Leaning in, uh, as you said, once you know your shtick, you should stick with it. I'm leaning into the irredeemable shag shtick here. It's fire or Beatrice or green flame, whatever you want to call her this week, in her underwear when she first gets rescued by uh, Booster. Booster catches her. And she says, uh, they're armed and dangerous and hot on my tail. And why do I get the feeling they're not the only ones? Which has Booster, Beaster, Booster, I, keep, I can't say their names tonight, Booster and Beetle staring and ogling at her rear end. Which, it's crude, it's inappropriate, it's, it's uh, sexist, but damn it's funny. I'm not saying those guys are good guys for it, but you know, we had a discussion actually a couple episodes ago. Are... Booster and Beetle really misogynist pigs, or are they more just kind of like douchey bros who are real sex positive, you know? And I think they're more in the douchey bro kind of mold. I don't think they're really bad people. I don't think they they have anything against women. I think they just they're they like to have their tongue hanging out and they're lecherous. That's all. I think you're right, and I think that douchey bros are bad influences on each other. Uh, okay. As these guys definitely were, because I think that while Beetle, they started him off kind of as a, a sort of a jokester. Um, mm-hmm. He, I think he corrupted Booster, as and that actually will play out later on in the series, to, a little, a little uh, later on in a, in a very cool Justice League quarterly issue. Okay. The conglomerate where we kind of. You know, <laughs> You see Booster's frustration with being sort of half of this douchey bro duo that he found found himself in. Yeah, uh, that's so, fair. So, yeah, of the two, and it's funny because I was much more of a Blue Beetle fan than I was a Booster Gold fan. I love Blue Beetle solo series. 
never really read Booster Gold solo series. But of the two, yeah, I think Blue Beetle's the douchier one. And he is, of course, the one that ahems when uh, when uh, Fire makes her comment about, uh, you know. Uh, Hot on her tail. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, so we got to decide here. Do we go with the more sort of esoteric, funny because of the absurdity moment? Or do we go with the douchey bro moment? Hmm. Make your, make your case, sir. Well, I mean, listen, I, I'm a, I make comics for a living, so... I'm always, going to, I'm always going to appreciate the more, the not so obvious jokes, the, the more surrealist, existential, this doesn't make any sense, but we're going with it anyway. And in fact, it's a major plot point kind of, kind of moment. So I, I got to stick with my pick, man. I mean, I, I got to be loyal to my instincts. You know, you make a fair point. You do do this for a living. So you can probably spot a better moment than I can. So. As much as it goes against all of my douchey bro solitude and uh, not solitude, uh, solid solidarity, I, I, I'm going to have to give it to you. It, so, folks, congratulations, Wanjina. You are the proud winner of the Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Wow! Congratulations, you mutated husk of a thing. <laughs> Well, you know, folks, Joe sent me a message right before we got started. He's going to have to go for a while. Um, as I understand it, you're going to get in line for tickets for the new cable movie. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I got I, It's really important. I got to get it now. Even though the movie doesn't open until May, I, I, I got to be – I mean, it is cable, so I got to be on it with this. There's a guy in a red suit in this movie too, right? That's what they tell me. But, uh, you know, it's all about cable for me. Right. I get that. Totally understand. Well, folks, well, he's got that squared away and going to, you know, stand in line at his local box office. I hope he might, he might even camp out. If so, take pics, please. Anyway, uh, while he's doing that, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. And we're going to start off with some news. You may have heard of the DC imprint called Young Animal. Well, they recently did a crossover. It was entitled Milk Wars. And guess what? It featured the return of a JLI villain. Can you believe it? That's awesome. Now, it's been all over the web, so you may have already heard about it. And, you know, I don't really want to spoil it for you. Uh, except maybe I'll give you a hint. How's that? The villain in Milk Wars from JLI is in this exact issue of JLI we're discussing today. It's a guy who likes to talk to himself a lot. And his initials are MK, but I don't want to spoil it for you, so you'll just have to wonder. So uh, check that out. Milk Wars, the crossover is done now, but you can go check that out in your local comic shop. Now, next up, we've got a couple of birthdays to celebrate. First, the JLI comic, or I guess technically it was Justice League when it was first published, it turned 31 years old back on February 5th of this year. Happy birthday to Max and the crew. Second, the JLI podcast itself will be two years old on March 20th. Oh my gosh, we've got a birthday. We're going to be entering our terrible twos. Uh, so those of you doing math at home, you might be going, wait a minute, two years, why aren't we on issue 24? Well, okay, fair enough, fair enough, but let's think about this. We've covered 17 issues now, two annuals, and we had that awesome interview with JMD Mateo. So, you know, that's 20 episodes in 24 months. That's not too bad. I'm a little bit behind schedule, but I'm still doing pretty good. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I've had some life events. I've moved in other stuff, too. 
Jeez, excuse me. But uh, so maybe we won't hit right at the five-year mark, but, you know, it'll be somewhere in there. And, you know, it just means that the podcast will be around longer to enjoy. Let's see. Other podcast news. The JLU cast has launched from our friends Chris and Cindy Franklin right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Chris was a guest back on episode five of this show. And uh, the, the JLU cast is celebrating the much-beloved Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoon series. If you saw the series, you know, it features lots of JLI members like Batman, Martian Manhunter, Booster Gold, Captain Adam, Captain Marvel, Black Canary, and a lot more, even like from the Justice League Europe crew, a lot of them too. So definitely check out JLU cast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You will love it. Since we're pimping shows, I'll pimp one of my own shows real quick. The Who's Who podcast has returned. We've done some tangential stuff over the last year, but we are back full force in the regular Who's Who. So we just started with the Loose Leaf edition of Who's Who. In fact, last episode, we talked about Who's Who in the DC Universe, issue number one, which included entries for Fire and Blue Beetle's Bug Ship. So if you get a chance, please feel free to check out the Who's Who podcast. We'd love to get your feedback. So enough of the news for now. Let's get into this. So folks, remember social media, hashtags, pound FW podcasts. You can find us as JLI Podcast on Twitter. We're also on Just League International Blahaha Podcast on Facebook. We want to hear from you. And as I said earlier, it's all about building a community of online fans around JLI. So, and, and quite honestly, this show would be nothing without you guys, as you're about to hear with this book-length feedback I'm going to read. <laughs> and remember, if you are outside of the United States, please let me know, and we will assign you the appropriate embassy, because, you know, this is an international affair, folks. And uh, also, it's good to know if you're international. That way, I can filter iTunes properly to see your iTunes review. Reviews. What a convenient segue. Let's do a couple of iTunes reviews. And thank you to everyone, by the way, who's ever submitted an iTunes review. It's sincerely appreciated. It really does go a long way to helping people find the show. And as a thank you, I'll read your entire review on the air. So our first review comes from someone who just simply identified as Dad's Main. I have no idea who you are, man. You got to write it in and let me know. So Dad's Main wrote, I have finally listened to all of your podcasts to date with JLI. I enjoyed listening to it at work. It brings back memories of having bought the whole series when they were originally released. I wish that more of this type of characterization was done. I look forward to listening to the rest of the series. Well, thanks, Dad's Main. I appreciate that. Then I got a review from Michael O'Brien, who goes by Converge241, and uh, he entitled it Doing the League Justice. Clever. He says, Shag has taken on the Herculean task of running monitor duty for all things JLI, Wahaha, JL, JLE, McGuire, Giffen, Dematteis, humor era <laughs> of Justice League. I discovered the show due to my love of the series, which may be my favorite series of all time. This acted like a gateway drug into the entire Fire and Water podcast network, which is amazing, and I was so thankful that someone has taken this job on to give this run an extra level of credit and introspective look back. Shag is a great host combining knowledge and humor and bringing in expert rotating guest hosts who provide the same. You'll also get great recommendations to great trade paperbacks from sponsor partners and other podcasts and blogs. Everything drops for me when a new episode hits like a great big one punch from the podcasting gods and hope you will agree. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. It was incredibly kind of you. So thanks again to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. And for those of you who have not yet submitted an iTunes review, well, I just assume you're the kind of people who like to kick puppies. So, all right. Coming up next is going to be your feedback from the episode covering Justice League International number 16 with my guest host, Mike Harlow. Now, I'm going to be picking and choosing your comments. I, I can't read all of it. We'll be here all night, folks. So I'll just be cherry-picking bits and pieces that people wrote. First up is Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He hosts shows like It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, and he's a past guest of this show. Ryan says, is it me or does Mike Harlow sound a lot like Tim Wallace? I'm pretty sure Shag is recycling guests all already and just making up fake names. <laughs> 
Thanks, Ryan. Well, um, Mike Harlow may have sounded a bit like Tim Wallace, who was on episode three of the show, but I promise you Mike is a real live different person. In fact, Mike and I hung out just last month in Los Angeles at the Doctor Who convention I attend. And um, speaking of recycling guests, hmm, I'm on my 20th episode without recycling guests. And how long did it take you, Ryan, before you started recycling guests on your Secret Origins podcast? Hmm. Oh, yeah, I think it was episode six. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for your feedback, pal. Uh, <laughs> up next is a comment from Michelle Fifay, a comic book writer and artist who's self-publishing his own series, Copper, which you've got to check out, and he's a past guest of this show. Now, last time, Mike and I were talking about guest appearances where the JLI may have appeared. So uh, Michelle chimes in. He goes, I like Booster and Beetle dropping in on Scott in Mr. Miracle number 7. It helped that it was written by J.M.D. Mateus. Then he poses the question, what is the JLI's lamest cameo, though? He says, I'm voting for Blue Beetle. Uh, he thinks it's issue number 21, or maybe Power of the Atom number 9. He goes, I'll have to revisit those Captain Atom issues, but I remember them being a bit off the mark. Now, regarding Batman, it seems like Bat editor Denny O'Neill didn't want to muck things up between his and other titles. And hey, it's the Batman. Tough to be stingy with a hot commodity that everyone's going to want to use. A large part was probably the creative team's own interest, too. Uh, I doubt Jim Starlin gave a crap about much about Batman outside of his book he was working on. Great. Now all I want to see is Bwahaha Brayfogel. <laughs> that would be amazing, right? And now, personally, I would like to thank Michelle for sending me scans of uh, an old Amazing Heroes article. Article, uh, from issue 116. It appears this was published during the early days of the JLI comic, and it reveals a little something about uh, how Mr. Miracle joined the Justice League, which has been a topic we've talked about on this show many, many times. Here, I'll read you the relevant pieces real quick. And the article is written by Andy Mangles, right? So you know it's good. And so he writes about Mr. Miracle. He says, although the new membership for the Justice League was decided on by DC, they neglected to set up all the characters in the Legends series. Neither Mr. Miracle with Oberon nor Dr. Light even appeared in the series, much less join the new Justice League. Then there's a quote here from uh, Keith Giffen. It says, I had to scramble around to try and figure out where they came in, admits Keith Giffen. Bob Greenberger offered me Mr. Miracle because of the special, and they wanted to keep him visible. Look at that. So now we have a little more information on the background of, of how Mr. Miracle ended up in the series. Now, it still doesn't answer when Mr. Miracle joined, like who actually invited him and stuff like that, but you know what? We're one step closer to the puzzle. There's also in the article a nice little piece about Black Canary. It says, Keith Giffen is hampered in his plans for Black Canary by Mike Girl's upcoming Green Arrow miniseries and series. Keith Giffen says, I can't do too much with her. He uh, Giffen readily admits. And then he goes on to quote, I'm not really doing anything with her that hasn't been done before, other than making her the one who is most aggravated by Guy Gardner. I eventually want to give her a harder edge than she's been shown to have before. So there you go. Thank you so much, Michelle. That's awesome. I love these Amazing Heroes articles. Uh, Michelle finds the coolest stuff in those Amazing Heroes issues. And personally, I really enjoy reading stories that were contemporary because, you know, hearing someone talk about it at the time they were working on it is sometimes very different than their reflections after the fact. So very cool. Thank you so much. Then we heard from my buddy Martin Gray from the Two Dangers for a Girl blog, and he's also in the Scottish Embassy. He writes, That's definitely Tora on the cover with B and Bruce. I was reading Bialian Harpers in Queen Bee magazine back then, and those hats were Bialian high fashion. And the knife's there because Ice is now a top undercover agent. The whole point of this thing is that it's JLI undercover. Then he goes on to say, I have to say, you blew my mind, pointing out that on the show that that was Queen Bee on the cover. Shag, 30 years of thinking I was looking at Ice. Interestingly, the folks at the excellent comic uh, Grand Comic Database were apparently also confused. In their listing of characters on the cover, they list Bruce and B only. Please don't be insightful again. It upsets me. <laughs> now, I have to say, folks, there were a whole bunch of people that thought that was Ice on the cover and not Queen B. So, um, hey, I'm going to reach over here, breaking my arm, patting myself on the back. Huh. 
Uh, let's see. Martin goes on to say, Splendid show. Mike Harlow is a top guest. I love this issue a lot. What a lovely change of pace. Seeing the gang undercover was fun, though why George Bailey wore glasses I'll never know. If only Kevin McGuire had drawn Ted carrying that suitcase that everyone clubbed together to buy George, I'd have wept buckets. You know, Martin, I would have done the same. It's a Wonderful Life is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. That, that would have really got me. Martin then goes on to recommend that folks head over to the Secret Origins podcast page of this very network, Fire and Water Podcast Network, and tune into episodes of Secret Origins covering issues number 33 through 35 to hear Ryan Daly and the guests talk about the Justice League International beginnings. Yeah, those are those issues of Secret Origins where they cover the JLI origins. Now, you know, I'll pose this question to you guys. Uh, you know, the, the Secret Origins issues are, as far as I'm concerned, valid JLI stories. But Ryan did a great job covering them. Should we discuss the stories here, which may end up just being a rehash of what Ryan and the crew did, or should we let it be, or you know, or do it slightly differently? I don't know. Well, let me, chime in on the comments. Let me know what you guys think we should do about the Secret Origins of the JLI in the Secret Origins comic. All right, much appreciated. Then uh, Paul Hicks chimes in. He's from the Waiting for Doom podcast, and he's also in our Australian embassy. And then check out Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast that Shag mysteriously forgot to plug after talking about the Doom Patrol for twenty minutes. It's straight with Mike Harlow. <clears throat> yeah, uh, sorry about that, Paul. But see, I mentioned it now. Look at that. Then we heard from my buddy Chris Franklin, also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Him and his wife just recently launched the JLU cast, and they have other podcasts as well. And he's a past guest of this show. Chris wrote, I never saw that that was Queen Bean either on the cover. I thought it was ice for some reason, but I always caught the bat shadow because, well, come over to my house and just look around. <laughs> this is one of my favorite JLI issues, period. Kevin McGuire is at the height of his JL powers. And Bruce Wayne is James Bond? I was totally there. As a kid, one of my best friends was a huge Bond fan, and he and I concocted this story where he was James Bond and I was Batman, and we were old college buddies. And of course, we went up against Raja Ghoul, so Bruce to Bond is only a step away for me anyhow. Part of me always thought that Batman and Fire had some uh, heat to the relationship as a leftover from their now completely out of continuity Super Friends comics that Green Fury or Green Flame or Fire originally appeared in. Her and Bruce were friends before she got her powers. Maybe slightly more than friends, hmm? And if anyone is offended by this or any other appearance of Fire, lighten up. That's the character. No one holds her as a pedestal for paragon of women's rights or anything. And as Mike pointed out, she's usually in control manipulating men into puddles of goo. So that's all good. And he says, Mike Harlow is a great guest. You two had a great back and forth. <laughs> then he goes on to say, oh, and Juan Jenna is rocking the toxic crusader look. Which one came first? That is a great question, Chris. I will leave that to you folks in the comments to figure that one out. Then I heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He says, another fantastic episode on issue 16. It's funny, I'm also guilty of thinking that Ice is on the cover in disguise rather than Queen Bee. Eh? Eh, look at that. Everyone write this in your calendar. Shag was right for once. Everyone else is wrong. Uh, he goes, looking at the evidence provided, I'm kind of surprised I missed that. And he goes, the death of the Ruman is still shocking to this day. It took uh, guts to kill off a character like that that was built up for so many issues just to introduce a new threat. Luckily, it paid off as the Queen Bee is an amazing villain. I'd say issue 16 is where the book really started to take off in terms of long-running plot threads, and this one leads to a lot of payoff down the line. Yes, Jose, it absolutely does. And by the way, Jose's also been posting over on Facebook. He got the DC Legion of Collectors box of Pop Funkos, and it's of the Green Lanterns. It includes Guy Gardner and Kilowog. Sweet! And also got his blue and gold Pop Funks as well. Awesome, Jose. Then I heard from my buddy Dale Russell, and he says, Best JLI show ever. And I am now diligently looking for a big Barda video. Oh, look, there's one. 
Oh, my. <laughs> All right, up next is a letter from my buddy Tim Price. And we have this sort of relationship where he writes these really long, like, theses. I think it's like a job work release program. I'm not really sure. Anyway, Tim wrote in to say, Another great but subtle example of Kevin McGuire's acting prowess is on the last page. First panel, Ramon is playing to the crowd and doesn't see Juan Jenner reaching for him, while Queen B turns away. And at that moment, we learn she knows what's coming and chooses not to watch. That's awesome. And uh, what I'm not telling you here is throughout this entire thing that Tim has written, every single name has an apostrophe after the first letter. Because if you remember last time we talked about Nort with the apostrophe, whether it has an apostrophe or not, both spellings are legitimate. And so he has gone in and put an apostrophe after every single first letter of a name, and it's really irritating. And uh, Tim says, P.S., I don't know, guys. Don't you think an apostrophe in Nort's name looks kind of goofy? You make a fair point, Tim. Then he goes on to say, ugh, I just don't know. How did I never notice the Batman shadow on the cover before. I I must have, right? I've only looked at this cover dozens of times over the years. If not, er, but uh, big time nerd fail. <sighs> Sorry, Tim. Yes, that is in the fail column. Then we heard from a new friend named Steve Cronin. He says, I don't know anything about the JLI. At least I didn't until I listened to my first JLI podcast when it showed up in my Firewater podcast feed. After many weeks, I eventually listened to the episode with Captain Crick, and I was intrigued by what I heard. This sounded like no book I'd ever read. Certainly very different from what I'd read in the Bronze Age. Curiosity peaked. I was wondering where and how to try out reading the series. Well, I was checking out the big sale at Ollie's. Oh, if you guys didn't, I'm sorry, this little side, this is me. If you guys didn't hear about the huge sale at Ollie's, oh my gosh, insane prices on trade paperbacks. I don't have an Ollie's in my town, so I'm bummed out. I have to watch everyone else's collection, so good for you guys getting all those books. I'm so jealous. Okay, Steve goes on to say, I was checking out the big sale at Ollie's, and when I was scooping up Superman in the 50s and Superman in the 70s, I found a book reprinting the teen issues, the very ones you're talking about now. Going to hold off on listening to this episode until I can read the issue, but I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, Steve, and welcome to the JLI. Then we heard from my buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy and who you can hear on the most recent episode of It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour. Uh, Jimmy writes in to say, The name's Embassy. Irish Embassy, or Embassy, if you're Sean Connery. That was terrible on my part. Sorry. Oh, okay, so, little background. Mike uh, Harlow and I were talking about assistants in Hollywood and things like that, and he described having an assistant, a personal assistant. I'm like, I want a personal assistant for the show. So, Jimmy's taking it to the next step. So, he writes, well, when Shag mentioned that he wanted an assistant for his show, following his discussion with Mike Harlow, the Embassy has received a number of expressions of interest. Shag has sent me a list of the duties that he would need the new assistant to do, and I was just emailing this list to those who were expressed interest in, wow, I have not seen so many people would draw their interest so fast. What was on that list of duties, Shag? Well, Jimmy, it's uh, things we don't like to talk about in polite company. Anyway, uh, Jimmy goes on, Yes, Batman did come back onto the team way too early, but I put that down to Guy's expert pleading at the end of the last issue. The humor of Booster and Beetle shone through big time this episode, and it was a stroke of genius having Batman disguise himself as Bruce Wayne to go undercover. Now, although your discussion of how Bayalia benefited from Wayne Enterprise funds did make me ponder, I would have thought Batman would have been a little more careful with where he invested his money. I know, right? Huh. Uh, let's see, Jimmy goes on to say the post-crisis reimagining of Queen Bee was much better character than her pre-crisis incarnation, although Grant Morrison did bring her back in a version later in his run. And yes, folks, that was Queen Bee on the cover. Was there ever any doubt? Look at that. Well done, Jimmy. Someone realized it. Last thing he says is, finally, on behalf of the Irish Embassy, sorry about Jack-O-Lantern. You know, thank you, Jimmy. We appreciate the apology, but in the coming months, I think you're going to have to apologize a lot for the Jack-O-Lantern. 
All right. Then I heard from my buddy Dr. Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary. He's also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers. Dr. Ange says, I'm the guy who didn't buy this stuff off the rack and is just in piecing together the early issues from the dollar boxes these last couple years. So this was a relatively new reading for me, as well as spoiler-free. As a result, the death of Harjavati really came out of left field for me. I think it was doubly effective given the tongue-in-cheek manner of the book. You weren't expecting gore, so when you get it, pow! And as someone said, this is McGuire at the height of his powers in all aspects. And I always thought it was ice on the cover, too. After all, she left a similar pair of lace-topped hose at my house that time. <laughs> oh my gosh, Dr. Ange. <laughs> um, then I heard from my buddy Sean Ross from the Pulp the Pixel Podcast Network. He does uh, several shows over there, including one of my favorites, Marvel's Secret Wars and Beyond. Such a good show. They just started Secret Wars, too. You guys got to check it out. Sean writes, has anyone had a greater impact on a book and on comic book psyches in such a short time frame greater than Kevin McGuire? He drew relatively few issues, but he is the JLI artist in all of our minds. You know, maybe Sternanko on S.H.I.E.L.D. or Marshall Rogers on Batman. You know, it's funny, too, because it isn't like McGuire was followed up by slouches on JLI either. You make a good point, Sean. I mean, we really do identify this book as a McGuire book. And by the way, we're almost done with McGuire. I, I might be talking on a turn here, but I think he's only got one more issue, really, till he's off the book regularly. Now, that's not a bad thing. We get Ty Templeton, we get Adam Hughes, we get Bart Sears, we got a lot of great art in the future. But uh, that is a huge change. Then we heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry. He says, I have nothing to add. Yeah, McGuire. Yeah, the humor. Yeah, Shag and his friends. This is a fun podcast and a fun comments page, especially Jimmy McGlinchey. I love reading the dispatches from the Irish Embassy. Look at that. Jimmy, you've got your own fan. That's awesome. Then we heard from Max Traver. He says, I finally caught up. I can comment on an episode that was actually current. Woo! Then he goes on to say, I got into this series with Justice League number one, having been away from the league for most of the Detroit era. Not hating that, I just drifted away for some reason or another. As for this issue, the undercover hijinks followed by the shocking, gruesome demise of Harjavati worked perfectly for me back in the day. And it really sums up the character of the series in general to me as well. Comedy and very much not comedy, side by side, and getting along just fine. You're right, Max. It does find a way to really strike that balance. Then we heard from my buddy Siskoid, who's also part of the Firewater Podcast Network. He does several shows, including First Strike Invasion Podcast. And he's up in our Canadian embassy watching all of our maple syrup and our mooses. Uh, Siskoid writes, A lot of nightmare fuel in the gallery this month for what is a comedy book. JLI always treading that line. Very true. Then we heard from Kevin Munson. He says, Great show. Not sure how I missed it for years that I thought it was ice on the cover, but you're right. It's Queen Bee. Keep up the great work. I can't wait for the next show. Then I heard from my buddy Lucien Desar. He says, Awesome. It always makes my day to listen to this podcast, one of my favorite comic book series, and I've been reading each issue along with the podcast. Awesome, Lucien. Thank you for that. Then heard from Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin, uh, at our Denmark embassy, and he has been picking up several old JLI issues he got in, like, the discount bins over in Denmark, which is awesome. Good finds. Well done. Now, this is the part of the show where we thank all the folks who shared our show on their social media timeline. So Facebook and Twitter, again, I say this every month. You guys know this, but it's a long list of names. I know that, guys. But listen, these folks went to the effort to share our podcast and promote it. So it's really important to me we recognize these individuals. And this time out, we're looking at over 70 names who helped promote just this last episode. Amazing. You guys are the freaking best. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, strap in. Here we go. Our thanks to Al Girding. Professor Alan Middleton, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Brad Dade, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Cat Comics, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Comics Vault, DC OCD Podcast, Debster70, Derek Crabb and the Fanholes Podcast, Dr. Ange, Ed Latore, Ed Moore, 
Engineer, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Graphic Novelism, Headcast Network, Jack Dower, Jake Perry. By the way, Jake is doing an online comic strip called Nort My Problem. Be sure to check it out on Twitter. It's really funny. Jared West, Jared Albrecht, The Yard Sale Artist, Jennifer Schwartz, Jeremiah Parker, Justin Steiner, Keith G. Baker, Kirk Spencer, Con L., Chris Stados, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Lucien Dessar, Mark Lax, Mark Adams, Mark Baker Wright, who, by the way, Mark Baker Wright and I just hung out recently at that Doctor Who convention last month with Mike Harlow. Super fun. Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Matthias McBride, Matt the Chat, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Michael O'Brien, Michelle Fife, Partisan Cantina, Rob Kelly and his support from The Mash Cast, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, Digest Cast, and the Film and Water Podcast. Rod Pruitt, Rolled Spine Podcasts, SAC, Bat Pod John, St. Dylan, Saladin M. Bryant, Scott X, Siskoid, Slang World Resists, The 108th Sage, Tim Price, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Zoom Yukonori. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and the community of JLI fans we are building together is absolutely amazing. And now, if I've forgotten anyone, I'm really, really sorry. It, it was probably my Carlos' fault. But anyway, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Don't forget, go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave comments on the show posts over on Facebook. Again, it's uh, JLI Podcast or Justice League International Bahaha Podcast. On Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. And the email, of course, is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Mike Harlow for helping me cover JLI number 16. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. So much fun. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if Joe has managed to get his movie tickets. Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC events, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very... Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What? What, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. All right, folks, we are back from break. Yep. And here we Oh, Joe, you're back. Awesome. Did you get your tickets? I did, but I'm not quite sure if they're authentic or not. They, they looked at me funny when I said that I wanted to buy tickets for a movie that opens in May, but uh, they still took my money. I don't I don't quite understand what happened. Is it just like a, a little scrap of paper drawn in crayon that says one, admit one or something like that? Because that might not be legit. It is, but but I but I know that for Deadpool, that could actually be a legitimate ticket. <laughs> That is a very valid point, sir. That is a very valid point. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on this episode of the JLI Podcast. We sincerely appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast here. Uh, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find more of you and more of your work? Well, you know, good Lord. Go to your local comic shop and, and, and ask them if they carry any image comics. I'm sure I'll be in there somewhere. <laughs> um, you can watch uh, Cartoon Network. Ben 10 is airing. I don't know when because I don't watch TV, but uh, it's, it's there. I have no uh, social media footprint whatsoever. So really just legitimate commercial uh, venues where you have to either turn on a TV or go to a comic store and pay money is where you can find me. Smart man. Staying away from social media is a smart, smart move. You end up wasting your whole life. And then you hear nerds natter on about, you know, what they didn't like about your creative venture. And they want you to do more of exactly the same rather than being creative and bold and doing something different. So smart move. Well, I love those. I love those guys. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. But I figure my uh, role in the equation is to provide the things for people to bitch about. <laughs> well, as fans, we appreciate that, Joe. We really do. Please keep creating so that we can keep bitching. It's, uh, a, it's I, a nice cyclical loop there. Uh, my pleasure. Well, again, thank you, Joe. And folks, Come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 18. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Sorry, you're just going to have to wonder for another month, folks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. Oh, and I'm Joe. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something, something of it? it? Why would I be jealous of a 12-year-old kid? 10-year-old kid. Whatever. He's just a kid. Let me guess, because he does have superpowers? Huh. Did you hear that, guys? She says we don't have superpowers. No, I'm saying you don't have superpowers. Huh. Did you hear that, guys? She says I don't have superpowers. Uh, technically, you don't have superpowers. <laughs> what? Well, Aquaman can talk to fish. I can fly. You're just a loaded guy with a rubber mask, a fancy car, and a funny belt. Don't get me wrong. You're in great shape, but no superpowers, pal. Sorry. Hey, hey! Excuse me. I'm just gonna grab my lunch. So, you must be the new kid. Uh, Ken Ren.
Ben, yes, and you must be Batman. Just kidding. Can I have your autograph? You want my autograph? <coughs> I mean, uh, yes, of course. Cool. Does uh, anyone want half my sandwich? Oh, 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 oh I do. Thanks. <laughs> you know what, Superman? I used to have pajamas that looked just like your outfit. You, you did. Well, gotta go. It was great meeting you guys. Oh my god! Did you hear that? His pajamas look like my outfit! I know! And he asked for my autograph! Yeah! And he shared his tuna fish sandwich with me! Are you seriously eating tuna? Awkward. Flash is gonna love this. I think I'm gonna throw up.